We're going to be in the uh, 40th chapter of Isaiah. But first, I saw something that um, really wanted, it sort of got my attention and made me think a little bit this week. It had something to do with the Amazon. And so I just looked up a few facts about the Amazon River. And there's a debate about whether it's the longest river in the world or the Nile is. It's pretty close. But it's definitely the largest river in the world as far as volume of discharge of water that goes into the Atlantic Ocean. It's, um, it runs up from a depth of anywhere from, um, th- let's say, from uh, 66 to 165 feet deep. But it, during flood stages, it gets up to 300 feet deep in some places. At the mouth of the river, it can get up to 30 miles wide. But I think counting all the different tributaries that come into it there, it can get up to 200 and some miles wide. So it's not a continuous flow, but all along that many miles. What really struck me, though, was that... um, The amount of water that goes into the Atlantic Ocean at the mouth is is so huge that um, it would take the volume of water is it goes out. I can't remember how many miles, but in some places up to two hundred and some miles out, the stream of fresh water. There have been ships that have um, been in that section of water that would catch another ship coming by and saying, we're, we're dying of thirst. Have you got any water? And they would say, just drop your bucket in the water because you're two and a half, you're 250 miles off of shore, but for 20 miles wide, it's fresh water out that far. That's the volume of water coming off the off the uh, Amazon River into the Atlantic. And what it made me think about was all the people that are dying of thirst and fresh water is all around them. The, the, you know, living water is all around them, and all they got to do is drop their bucket, but they're dying of thirst and they don't know that it's available to them without doing anything else. But anyway, looking up the statistics of, of that amount of water... Forty percent of the water in South America flows through the Amazon. I mean, it's just a huge amount. Okay, Isaiah 40. Let me. Generalities before we get to the actual chapter. <clears throat> a few things that you know. Isaiah's got 66 chapters, and traditionally the book's been divided into two sections. Not everyone agrees with this, but the majority do. The first 39 chapters are filled with judgment. It's uh, calling on a people that are idolatrous, not just Israel, not just Judah, but the surrounding nations as well. And it speaks judgment against them. And... um, 
chapters 40 through 66, the whole scene changes. It's, it's, a, it's a change from judgment into a, judge, uh, a, a section of comfort for the people. Isaiah lived more than 700 years before Jesus, yet he speaks more of a Savior, the servant of the Lord, than anybody except David in the Psalms. His prophetic ministry occurred through four different kingships, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And his ministry, public ministry, begins near the end of King Uzziah's reign. If you remember Isaiah 6, 1, it says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And during Isaiah's life, the great outside danger to both the northern and the southern kingdom came from Assyria that was growing constantly in power at the time. Assyria had captured the northern kingdom, taken most of the people away in slavery, and now, at this particular point in time of Isaiah, they had been at the gates of Jerusalem, besieging the city, taunting God, saying, no other God has ever been able to deliver you from our hands, and what makes you think your God is any better? Well, Hezekiah humbles himself, prays, and Isaiah goes to him and said, God has heard your prayer, and the Assyrians will never set foot in Jerusalem. And that night, an angel of the Lord comes down and strikes down 185,000 people in the camp of the Assyrians. And though the Lord saved Israel, excuse me, Judah, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom's already gone in captivity. And though he saves the southern kingdom from Assyria, Isaiah is warning them about an even greater threat that's coming. And it's going to come from Babylon. Now, this is sometime in the future. So Isaiah is speaking in 40 and onward about a threat that's coming, and it's over 100 years in the future. And what you see preliminary to what's going on in chapter 40 is in chapter 39, which is only eight verses long. But let me read chapter 39 of Isaiah to you. It says, At that time, Merodach, I better do it to put it hyphenated, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house and the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. 
Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and where are they from? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house shall be, and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, from you will beget, and will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, For there will be peace and truth in my days. Imagine a king that says that. It's it's good that you said that. Yeah, everything's going to be fine while I'm alive. Never mind the fact that the country is going to be destroyed after I'm gone. Because I'm concerned about me and my legacy. The people of Babylon are there because they're seeking um, a tie with Israel because they're fighting against the Assyrians. So they're looking for an ally. But they're also looking for themselves. Because the time's coming that they're going to invade. And now they know everything that's in Israel. The treasury, all that they've got. And they're looking upon it with lust. But remember, Isaiah is going to speak about what's coming over a hundred years in the future. When the people in the southern kingdom of Judah have been taken away. They're in exile And they're going to be there 70 years before they are released to come back to Jerusalem and to the southern kingdom. So the first part, ending with 39, ends with a great warning to Judah. And Judah's no better than the people of the northern kingdom. And just as the northern kingdom was condemned for their idolatry and turning from the Lord, the same thing is going on in the southern kingdom. It's just going to take a little longer. (coughs) Babylon is going to carry away the people of Judah into exile, just like Assyria had captured the northern kingdom. And all this, again, is close to 100 years in the future. But God's not going to abandon his people forever. The call is to repent and be faithful, even as the Lord is faithful. The division of the Bible, as you know, is, was not originally divided into chapters and verses. <clears throat> now, it's a great practical help that we've got it that way, but it's not in the original scriptures. In the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah what you find is that Isaiah 40, verse 1, where it says, Comfort 
Oh, comfort my people, says your God. That verse, 41, begins just two lines from the bottom of the column where 39.8 ends. Without any suggestion of a break or a new beginning. And it's remarkable that that word in 39 that ends up is a word of doom. And immediately after, in verse 41, it's a word of comfort. They lie side by side. No sooner is just judgment pronounced than an equally just comfort is proclaimed. In fact, while one voice speaks the word of doom, the verb comfort, comfort, the, word, the verbs comfort, comfort are plural that command an unnamed group to bring comfort to those whom the Lord still calls my people. They've abandoned him, but he's not abandoned. He's not abandoning his people. He's not rejected them. The whole tone changes from one of confrontation to one of assurance. Isaiah speaks from his 8th century setting to a people in the future, in the 6th century, that he predicts in chapter 39 that we just read. The first five verses in chapter 40 read, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. And the rough ground become a plain. And the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Speak tenderly means speak to the heart. Speak kindly. Her warfare or her sad days, her hard service has ended. Her sins have been paid for double or twice over. So how can the the God of judgment become the God of pardon? Not just by saying so. For if he did that, then the holiness of God would be negotiable. And sin would be negligible. No big deal. There has to be a price paid for sin. Yet there is a glorious hope for the brokenhearted in exile. Verses 3 through 5 again says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. It says a voice cries out. 
The Lord God himself is on the way. Prepare your heart. Remove every obstruction. There's no condemnation here. They don't, they're in captivity. They don't need to be told that their sins are going to cause them trouble. They already know it. They've been there for 70 years in captivity. They need comfort. And so that's what's going on here. Prepare your heart. Remove every obstruction. Part of the background of this picture may be the picture from Ezekiel 10 and 11. That the Lord God had left the temple in Jerusalem in 587 B.C. This is when Ezekiel sees his vision of the Spirit of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem, going up from the inner court to the outer court, above the temple, and then out of the city. God has abandoned Jerusalem, and he sees the Spirit of God departing, saying, Ichabod, you've been judged. And this is what this is what was seen. Because of the wickedness of the people, the Spirit of God had left. But now God's glory is going to be revealed. And we're going to see his promises come to pass. His people are going to be return from 70 years of captivity. Their sins have been paid for. God redeems them. God's people cannot save themselves. So this restoration will have to begin with the return of the Lord. Otherwise, there won't be any. What Isaiah spoke about in chapter 40 was comfort, an everlasting comfort. What they would need as captive slaves in Babylon, again, is comfort. They needed to know that God still cared for them and that there was hope. Imagine you've been taken away as slaves, and the Babylonians were not nice people. They did not treat them well. And they're 70 years, and they're told to make a home. You're going to be here for a while. Build homes, raise families. They need comfort. It's interesting that the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses for comfort is also a word which can be translated repent. The root of the word has the idea of breathing deeply. So it can mean to breathe deeply with sorrow for your sin. Or it can mean to breathe deeply as you comfort and console someone. The idea is that God's comfort comes as a result of the people's repentance. It's always the case. You repent, God comforts. Because they have breathed deeply in repentance, God has breathed deeply as he consoled and comforted them. And a comfort in scripture is not quite the way we normally think of it. The idea comes from two Latin words that translated mean with strength. God's way of of giving comfort often means to give us strength to do what needs to be done. As his strength comes, grief and sorrow go. God is strengthening you to do what you need to do and what he's directing you to do. The word encouragement has much the same idea. It means to be encouraged. 
And if you are encouraged, you've got the courage to do what needs to be done. Sometimes God's comfort comes by forcing us to change and grow. Little story. Someone asked a paratrooper how many times he had jumped out of the plane while he was in the military. He said, none. His friend said, what do you mean none? I thought you were a paratrooper. He said, I was, but I never jumped. I was pushed several times, (laughs) but I never jumped. That's what the military calls encouragement. (laughs) Sometimes we need a little shove. But along with the shove, God gives us renewed courage and strength to do what he's calling us to do. In the end, it becomes something that we want to do. They encouraged me to do some repelling. And it was a gentle, sometimes not so gentle, push. So I can identify. Verses 6 through 11. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. A voice says cry. You see the same thing. A voice in verses 3. You see it in 6. You see it in 9. Is a voice. Maybe it's an angel. But it's the message, not the messenger, that's important. The contrast here is the perishable nature of all flesh compared to the imperishable nature of the word of God. The breath of the Lord or the spirit or the wind of God generates life, sustains life, and it destroys life. Remember that Isaiah again is writing to those long after his death that will be in exile and then released to return to Israel and Judah. Be aware that your oppressors are just men. They will wither like grass, but the word of the Lord will never fail. Don't put your trust in men, but in me, the Lord says. The comfort God promised will surely come. It's never failing. God's message is so completely reliable that it's to be proclaimed from a high mountain to all the cities of Judah. Verse 10 uses the word behold twice. It means here it is. Look. See. It's all happening before your eyes. 
the divine coming of the one who is God, the mighty coming of one who is with power. He's mighty, but there's enough, but there's nothing ruthless in the power of God. For his people, it's a sweetness. It's power working with love and by love. Look at the constant. Look at the contrast in verses 10 and 11. In 10, his arm is a ruling arm, and in 11, it's a gathering and gentle arm. The glorious Lord comes to his people as a conquering king and as a gentle shepherd. There are two messages in these verses, 6 through 11. First, the people of Israel and Judah must recognize their weakness that they've got no strength in themselves to provide a lasting salvation. And second, Israel and Judah must not trust earthly powers for redemption. For as strong as they may be, they're just grass and flowers. God's people have to trust him alone. Matthew Henry says, We must be convinced that the word of the Lord can do that for us which all flesh cannot. And another commentator says, if I insist that I am permanent, I will fail. But if I confess God's permanence, if I trust his word and believe it is sure, then he sustains me forever. Verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And these words are so comforting if we'll just sit quietly and read them. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or is his counselor or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and he regarded and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver to keep it from tottering over, no doubt. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, He seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Is he who sits it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justness due me escapes the voice or the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. Comfort because of God's character. This section is all about God the creator. The one who guarantees all of his promises. Verses 12 through 14 again show us a sovereign God who in his wisdom blends all things together in an exact manner. Now, here's a figure that you'll want to remember. There are an estimated 332,519,000 cubic miles of water on this planet. Yet the scripture said God holds them in the palm of his hand. A large human hand has a span of eight or nine inches. But God can measure the heavens with just his hand span. The nearest star is four light years away, but God can measure the father a star with just his thumb and little finger. God's cup. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? Can you measure how much sand there is on a beach? I doubt it. We couldn't find a container big enough or strong enough. Yet God has a measuring cup that can hold the sand from every beach and every desert in the world. And God scales. 
Who has weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Ever tried lifting, lifting a huge boulder? Yet God can lift the Alps, the, Alps, the Himalayas, the Rockies, the Andes, <laughs> and his scales don't even notice it. What man shows him as counsel? There are a series of questions and they remind us that God doesn't need a teacher. He never sits down with his creatures and asks, so what do you think I should do? Which bothered me immensely in a section of the chosen when he asked Matthew, when Jesus asked Matthew, what do you think? I go, oh, I don't think so. God's bucket. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Look at the population of China, the military might of Russia, and the threat of North Korea, and all these nations, and then the superpower supposedly of the United States. But none of the superpowers, they're none of them are superpowers to God. They're like dust. God's calculator. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. We look at gross domestic products, GDP. God adds it all up to less than zero. In verses 18 through 20, again. To whom will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? And then it talks about idols that are flash fashioned by human hands. God alone is God. This is not the first time that Isaiah shows mockery and disgust at idolatry. In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah says about Israel, the land is full, is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands and to what their own fingers have made. And this is what Jeremiah says in the 10th chapter. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an eye by the hand of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. The idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do any good. Is this what you're going to compare to God? Apart from the God who reveals himself in Scripture... People are confined to their own thoughts and imaginations when they devise when they devise these idols, when they come up with pictures. The emphasis is always on the human earthly origin of such a God, and it's always powerless. Notice how verse 19 begins. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. And in 20, how it ends with reference to a craftsman again. And that says it all. It's a human invention. A human craftsman. 
verses 21 through 24 again says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? You're responsible to know, and you're guilty if you ignore the truth. The world is not self-originated. Israel, you've always known the only God. From the beginning of a nation, you knew there was only one God. You had a revelation going back to the beginning of your existence as a people. You need to have a proper perspective about earthly powers. Compared to God, they appear as grasshoppers. God needs the whole expanse of the sky to provide a tent sufficient for himself. The power and prestige of earthly kings means nothing to the Lord. Like chaff or stubble, they're quickly dispersed. Again, verses 25 through 26 talk about God's power and wisdom, greatness, deity, and dominion. And they put the Lord beyond all comparison. But the supreme blow to any comparison is God's holiness. Because it calls him the holy God, the holy one. That's this, thus says the holy one. His holiness means his unique moral majesty. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created thee, these. He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God created numbered names and reports all the stars. At the last human count, there were 10 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars. Now, you understand that's an estimate. God has the exact number. In the last four verses, the questions asked reveal how frail Israel's faith and our faith is. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator, the ends of the earth. He doesn't become tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. So these questions reveal how frail Israel's faith is and ours. They also reveal the absurdity of faithlessness. Why would you not be faithful to somebody that controls everything, knows everything, has all power, completely compassionate, and is holy? It's sad when we think about it that way, but that's the only way there is to think about it. King of kings, sovereignly in charge of his world, down to the smallest detail so that everything is in its place, nothing is overlooked, and nothing is lost. 
And the last verse again, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. This is a a vivid picture of the spiritual transformation that comes through faith. Weary and faint are words associated with being worn down by circumstances and situations. They describe someone whose inner strength is gone. But because of their hopes in God, he will renew their strength. The true and living God of Scripture will renew the strength of all that put their trust in him. This is a a chapter that it ought to be the one we run to so often. When things look desolate, when things look bleak, when things seem to be coming apart. It's nice that he compares us to eagles and not to chickens. (laughs) Eagles soar. Chickens look down and scratch in the dirt. There's a difference. Let's pray. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we know you're strong, but we know we're weak. But Lord, your word strengthens us, and it never fails. And even in the midst of difficulties, Lord, we know that your hand is active, that you're present, that you never leave us, that we're your people. And you don't take us as your people frivolously. It's not a conditional thing. Your hand is strong, ours is weak. So we rely, we rely on you, Lord. We trust in you, and we give you thanks for all the glory that's yours. In Jesus' name, amen.